2: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Charlene Carr about her commercial novel, Hold My Girl. Technically, Charlene is not a debut novelist and she's written 10 self published novels, but Hold My Girl is her first traditionally published novel, and I was really keen to talk to her about the transition between self and traditional publishing and the differences she's experienced. Charlene has lived in four countries and now lives in Nova Scotia with her husband and daughter. She has a BA and MA in English Literature and a Bachelor of Journalism degree. After working in an array of mostly writing-related jobs, she decided the time had come to focus exclusively on her true love, novel writing. In this episode, we discuss how her self-publishing career began, how and why she decided to get a traditional publishing deal, her compelling novel premise, which was based on a real life fear, and how the first thing she wrote was actually the novel's closing lines. But before we get into that, here's Charlene with an excerpt from Hold My Girl.
3: Catherine scanned the living room again. Everything was where it should be, as it always was. She walked through to the kitchen, scanned. Everything here too was where it should be, which was Patrick's argument. Everything was always where it should be, so how hard would it be to see the keys if he left them on the counter, or the coffee table, or his dresser? She'd find them. Mama! Catherine clenched her jaw, fighting not to let frustration get the best of her. She told Sadia she'd be at the party fifteen minutes early to help set up, which was five minutes ago. And now, if she wasn't in the car in precisely four minutes, she'd be late for the start, even if she caught every green light, which meant she was already late, because how likely was that? Catherine picked up her phone and clicked on Patrick's picture. She paused. If she talked to him, asked where the keys were, he'd ask how her day was going, and what would she say? She'd received a phone call from the fertility clinic, a strange message, a rather serious issue regarding your IVF procedure, and she hadn't called back. Telling him would put voice to the fear she'd lived with for almost a year. That Rose wasn't hers. Catherine was light-skinned for a black woman, even a mixed-race one. But Rose, as a newborn, was so white she made Patrick's cream-colored skin look tan. Her hair was fine and straight and almost blonde. Her eyes a bluish-green, which was possible. Patrick had blue eyes And Catherine's aunt on her mother's side had a hint of green. They joked about it in the beginning, Catherine forcing a smile. To her, it had never been a joke. Catherine closed her eyes, swallowed. The call, whatever the doctor had to say, would be nothing, of course. A formality. Maybe someone's life was about to irrevocably change. But it wouldn't be hers. Hi, and Welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have
2: you here with me today to discuss your novel, Hold My Girl.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Now, normally I would say, Welcome to the podcast. And this is your debut novel. But Charlene's a bit different because Charlene has had an amazing self-publishing career before this. But you will find out later why I wanted to invite her on the podcast because you have such a fantastic kind of journey to publication story that I have to find out more about. But can you start by telling us what your novel, Hold My Girl, is about?
3: Absolutely. So it's a dual-narrative novel about two women who go through IVF, and about a year and a half later, they discover. That their eggs has been eggs have been switched, and one woman is raising a child who is not biologically hers, and the other woman is grieving the loss of a child that she was never meant to carry.
2: It is such an irresistible premise. Like the hook is there immediately. But I think <laughs> the the kind of the general premise is revealed, like literally within the first couple of chapters. So you've already got your mm-hmm. readers, you know, by the throat there. You want them to carry on your inspiration for this novel came from a very personal place and you did what a lot of writers do which is find something in their life and then question what if what if something was different what if the worst happened so can you tell us a little bit about how this novel began where did the idea come from?
3: Absolutely so my daughter was born of IVF as well and when she was born within a few weeks I kind of clued into the fact that she didn't have really any of my features she actually had dimples and that's what kept me sane um I have dimples for the people who (laughs) well everyone's listening not viewing um and everyone kept on saying how much she looked like my husband she was a spitting image of my husband and so I'm a mixed race black woman and my daughter emerged visibly white my husband is white and her skin was even more pale than his her hair was blonde and straight Uh, Her eyes were gray, which is not on either side of our family trees, so that was a little unnerving. And I was genuinely concerned that there might have been a switch at the fertility clinic and she might not biologically be my daughter. And so very thankfully, by the time she was around six to eight months, these things started shifting and changing. I was seeing my features, her hair curled, her eyes turned brown. Um, And I was just her facial features started changing as well. And I could see her. And that then gave me the freedom to explore these fears and say, what would have happened if she hadn't biologically been my daughter? And even more importantly, what would I have owed to the woman whose child I had been raising? Mm. And so with that in mind, I started digging in and through asking all those questions. That's how I came up with the, you know, the premise, the plot, the characters in Hold My Girl.
2: Yeah, I mean, it brings up so many kind of morality questions, and I'm sure there'll be people reading it, taking sides and also thinking, what would I do in this situation? And that is just such a irresistible premise for a novel. I was wondering whether you could tell us a little bit more about your two main women in the novel, Catherine and Tess. Um, can you tell us a bit about what they're like as people, what are their flaws, but also what do they have in common? Because I think they do have a lot of shared ground.
3: Absolutely. So Catherine is your standard perfectionist, you know, kind of a type A personality. She wants things the way she wants them. She has very specific plans and goals for her life, how she's going to be, how she expects the people around her to be. Uh, Tess is a little more low key. She's very intelligent, very capable, but she's also very wounded and she lets that kind of stifle her, her potential herself. Um, and it's not until the switch is revealed and she realizes she has a child out there that she starts actually stepping up for herself, stepping up for this child, trying to kind of correct her life and become the person she she wants to be, not only for her child, but for herself. And so what they have in common is this intense desire to be a mother and this love for the child and this belief, I think, that they want. Their daughter to come first it does take a little while to get there I'd say (laughs) you know initially they're thinking about their own desires their own wants and needs but I I think a strong love is something that they absolutely have in common
2: Mm. they almost get in the way of themselves at times because I think they they both carry a lot of doubt in terms of what makes them a mother and what makes them the right mother and I know obviously you've gone through IVF yourself Um, how important was it for you to kind of share this kind of raw honesty about motherhood and what it means to be a woman? Because obviously, there are all these things going on in your mind going through IVF. And then you've got this extra layer on this novel where two women essentially fighting it out. And who's who's the better person? Who's the more deserving of being a mother? But going back to kind of a reality side of it, was it important for you to kind of show that side of the kind of emotional toll of, of IVF as well?
3: Absolutely. Yeah, very important. Um, it is, it's a toll. It does a number to most women's mind to their emotions. You, this thing that you're told your whole life is supposed to come naturally. That's kind of, well, that is what women are physically built for. <laughs> um, when you realize your body can't do it or can't do it on its own, you often have these feelings of shame, of brokenness, of not being who you're meant to be. And of course, in reality, none of like you shouldn't feel that way at all. Yeah, so what if physically our bodies are designed to have children, we're also designed to have the capacity to do and experience so many other things. But when that is a desire that you have, it's overwhelming and you can feel very alone. And I really wanted to push that through the way that it brings up so many insecurities, the way that you stop feeling like yourself and like your idea of womanhood becomes wrapped up in this concept of motherhood, mm. which is extremely unhealthy, but I think happens to a lot of women who are going through this experience.
2: Yeah, one thing I thought you did so well in this novel was balance both kind of sides of the argument, as it were, because both women are incredibly sympathetic and we feel for both of them and I mean they're both going through this worst case scenario this horrific situation they're both flawed as we've mentioned and I kind of felt like when I was reading it I just kept thinking well I don't know what the right outcome is I don't know what should happen and I don't know what I want to happen either and I think you balanced that kind of shifting sympathy really well how did you how did you manage to do that
3: so I think a big part of it is that as you say they're both flawed and everybody's flawed. And so when I was in each of their perspectives, I was thinking from their perspective. And in our minds we're all kind of the hero of our own journey but we're also often the villain and we can't always see that. <laughs> but of course the the reader looking out um looking in can see that. And so it was it was really just making sure I was being as deep into that character's perspective while I was writing their point of view as I could. And I think through doing that, you see all that complexity of their intentions and how their intentions don't always line up with what they actually do. And I think that really created the ability for the sympathies to go back and forth. As well, a, a big kudos out to my agent. Um, I think her helping me kind of restructure the novel really played into that very well in my initial version it was kind of 70% maybe 65% Catherine and you know around 35% Tess and through her suggestions I really evened it out so it's pretty close to 50-50 and that as well helps with the back and forth of of the sympathies as you're going through.
2: Yeah because I was going to ask you did you feel that you were almost just because you were writing it, siding with one of the women more than the other?
3: I think initially um, my focus was more on Catherine and I had it on being more Catherine's story and Catherine's journey. Mm. I don't know that I was specifically siding with her, but I was certainly a bit more focused on her arc and probably because her story related more closely to mine, her being the birth mother. and I get, not mine, my fear of what may have happened, that, you know, my daughter might not have biologically been my daughter.
2: Mm. So on a practical level, then, when you're kind of creating these two characters, and particularly Tess, because I suppose she was the one that was further away from your experience, did you have to really kind of sit there and, and make notes on what these women were like? Or are you the sort of writer that just kind of? plows ahead and writes and the characters come from your writing? Or did you kind of sit there and, and I don't know, make notes or lists about what these women were like deep down?
3: So I plot heavily. <laughs> um, you know, I, I feel like my notes and what I would call my story discovery, so before I actually start writing the novel, might have been 40 to 50 handwritten pages, um, just constantly asking questions about the characters, about applaud about their motivations about their their wounds um and what they really want and desire and so through asking all those questions I usually find that the the characters grow and develop and and you're able to kind of piece out okay well this works and this doesn't and so actually when I came to evening out the characters so I cut about 60,000 words from the first from the version that I queried Mm -hmm. um And then added about 30,000. And that 30,000 I was adding was pretty much all tests because the majority of what I cut was Catherine. But when I did it, it wasn't difficult. It was all already there in my mind from all the planning that um, I had done before and developing that character. And it was just things that I knew that I, I hadn't actually put on the page. And so the other big thing there is, I won't say what it is, but the ending, the last few lines of the novel are actually the first lines of the novel that got written. Um, wow. my yeah so my idea for the ending and there's kind of a quote that a lot of people have pointed out that they found really um resonant that was probably the first thing I wrote as I came up with that right I was in my kitchen talking with my husband and I came up with the premise and then I thought of the ending and yeah, I think I wrote that down and that's probably the first thing in my notebook and so the rest of the story all um the development the plot the characters you know some of the twists that happen. it all kind of not kind of. it all was focused on bringing the story to this conclusion that I had in my mind,
2: Wow. So I was going to ask you about the ending because I was thinking, how can we talk about it without giving away what the ending is? But I think like we've said enough about kind of what it could be. But I love this idea <laughs> that you that was the like the first thing that you wrote, and it's so it's such a great, almost like um lighthouse to head towards that you know what you're aiming for for your end and and what a tricky end to have to balance again because you're trying to find a very satisfying resolution for a very challenging story that doesn't have a kind of a neat ending but so the ending came to you just crystal clear
3: yes (laughs) uh absolutely i and i think it's because it's such a hard hard to you know you don't want to give spoilers but at the same time you mentioned it it it's hard to figure out what the right answer could possibly be. Yeah, and Definitely. that ending felt very satisfying to me, and felt yeah. like the type of ending that could exist in real life with these two women being who they are and their characters.
2: Well, I'm really pleased to have a big plotter on my show because I speak to so <laughs> many writers who do not plot and are pantsers all the way, and I am someone who loves to plot, and my the plot for my the book that I'm writing at the moment is about eight thousand words and very detailed in fact it could probably be more detailed than that but I I love a plot because I like you I find it reassuring to kind of know what is going to happen and have it all there even if it's not written properly yet it's there um so how conscious are you then writing a book like yours where you have to have so many I won't call them twists because I don't think they are twists they're like revelations so events that happen in the story that are very believable but um kind of maybe twist your perspective on a character or you know we we won't give too much away but kind of Catherine ends up going on a almost a bit of an investigation investigation of Tess to find out whether she's who she thinks she is um so obviously you're a plotter and you like to plan how conscious were you then of putting all these kind of revelations in to kind of keep it really page-turnery as a novel?
3: Uh, I think I was pretty conscious um I you know I I have kind of my formula that you go through the structuring the novel um, where you're hitting the hook the inciting event the key event the first plot point and all of those moments and so when I'm doing my outlining and my planning and I'm thinking when I first start it's just questions 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 that I'm writing out and different possibilities and it you know it could be what happens next and maybe there's seven things that I write out and I choose which one I think makes the most sense And then when I've kind of exhausted that, I go through and I start ordering everything. So, okay, well, this would make sense to be the inciting event. You know, this would make sense to be the turning point and then building from there. um, And so I'm, I'm absolutely very aware of it all. And as you were mentioning it makes everything go so much smoother when you actually sit down to write. And I will say, as I know you usually have debut novelists on my first novel that I wrote, I was totally pantsed. And that's probably a big part of why it took me 10 years to finish it. And I think the initial um, iteration was maybe 40,000 words. um, And I went through, you know, sending it to competitions and getting feedback, a writer in residence. And the final version is around 130,000 words. Um, And then my next novel was totally pantsed as well. And it's a lot shorter and a more kind of simple, straightforward story. Uh, But still, I had to do so much revision. And so for my third novel, I started looking into outlining. And so that outline was like one page, Um, you know, just kind of notes, broad strokes of the story. But I found it went so much faster and better. And so after that, I actually bought a book on outlining. I think the author's K.M or K.W. Weiland, something like that, wonderful um, book. And then that's when I really started digging in and I found my efficiency of writing was just through the roof so much better. And the revision for the most part was just way easier.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So you learned the hard way then. It's taken about three or four novels to make you into a (laughs) spotter.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if I could go back to pantsing again
2: well I always try to convince people I'm like it does help I mean to be fair the first book I wrote I, I had a plan and then I went off plan and then I wrote a new plan and then I went off that again um so it was maybe a bit more pants than uh, than plotted that version um but I like I just think it's I always I think of it as like a, a safety blanket you know it's there mm-hmm. in case I panic and I don't know what to write I've got a plan it's fine I've got a plan <laughs>
3: Absolutely. And it it minimizes too a lot of that sitting down to write and staring at the blank screen, Mm -hmm. because you don't know what's coming next. You know, I use Scrivener, and I kind of have scene by scene notes. So when I sit down, I just look at the notes, and I have an idea of what's coming. And obviously, there's still room for exploration there. Sometimes I end up writing additional scenes, sometimes I realize a scene really isn't needed, or two or three scenes really could be combined into one. But you've got that structure, um, just waiting there and that ability to not stare and think oh no what comes next
2: <laughs> <laughs> so we, we, we mentioned already you have self-published 10 novels so far um and yeah. I'd love to I'd love to hear you talk about your kind of writing journey um how you got into self-publishing before we talk about how this deal came about so how did it all begin for you
1: In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
0: Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad?
3: Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Absolutely. So, as I mentioned, I had my first novel, which took me about 10 years to write. So, from age 17 to 27. And I finished it and I was so excited. And I sent it out to a couple of local publishers. And they had very lovely things to say. This is maybe three or four publishers, but no one picked it up. And I thought, oh, Okay, I guess maybe this isn't publishable. And I I have a BA and an MA in English literature and as it happens all that I really really read my whole life were the types of books that you would study in school or in university and I thought, "Oh, okay, my book is falling short." You know, it's it's not that. And I could recognize that it wasn't that. And I kind of thought, "Okay, well, this was my first attempt and I guess I didn't hit the mark." Um, and then a friend of mine was saying, why don't you try self-publishing and see what comes of that? And this labor of love that I'd spent 10 years on, I just couldn't send it out into the world um, that way. This was around 2013. And at the time, especially where I live, I don't know if it was the same in the UK, in the academic world, it was very nose up about self-publishing. You know, it's like, oh, you only do that if you're a hack and you you can't cut it. Um But I thought, you know, maybe that's wrong. And so I wrote a new book specifically with the idea of self-publishing. It was a bit more straightforward. I didn't know this at the time, but it was more commercial. And I was hearing from readers right away, and they were loving it. And it was really fun, and they were asking for more. And so I just kind of dove into that and and kept on that route. And it was so rewarding and so fulfilling, not financially (laughs) very much, but in other ways. and um yeah so i i did that for i guess 7 or 8 years and then i became a mother and when you're self publishing if you are taking it seriously it's it's running a business you're handling kind of everything whether you're hiring people out or you're doing it yourself and i especially found in order to be making a profit at all i had to spend so much effort and time on marketing and advertising and um understanding the statistics behind all of that and tracking. And it was very draining for me. That area especially is not where my passion lies in any means. And I just didn't have the energy to write, to be creative, doing all of that business stuff, and then also being a mom. And I realized that something had to go. And so I wasn't going to let the creative stuff go. I wasn't going to let being a mom go. (laughs) So it had to be all that business um, part of it. And... Yeah. And, and also through this time, I, because I was studying the industry so much and I was reading, um, you know, more commercial or genre books and kind of figuring out a bit more what sold and what worked and seeing these best-selling books and thinking like, well, I think like objectively, some of mine are, you know, just as good or close at least. Um, and realizing what it what it took more. And so I realized, okay, if I want to do this and actually make money at it and not have to go back um, to a regular job, then I need to find an agent. I need to find a traditional publisher, um, ideally one of the big ones so that I can have enough money to, to actually do this. And when I started writing my next book after my daughter was born, about a year after she was born, I specifically had that in mind. I needed a hook, I needed a strong premise that in a couple of sentences, people could get excited or go, oh, or just understand what this story was about. And so when that idea came up, I thought, okay, I've I've got it. This is the one. And I put my all into doing that. I researched agents like crazy. I did courses on query letters, on synopses, um, webinars. And, and yeah, I just really had this firm goal in mind of this is my shot. <laughs> and if I can't make this work, then writing's going to have to become a hobby for me because, um, well, my husband and I, we had decided that if I wasn't making enough money by the time my daughter was in school full-time that I would be making in like, you know, a 30-hour-a-week job, let's say, then I needed to go back to work. And, you know, <laughs> he would kind of supported us for long enough. Um, and yeah, so thankfully it worked. And I found a, a big publisher. And
2: you've got a great deal for Hope My Girl as well. And it's obviously your research and your knowledge and and having this amazing premise really, really paid off. Mm-hmm. I always get people that ask me about self-publishing and I always hold my hands up and say I know nothing about it. And it's almost like a, well, it is an entire business, like you've said, in your, in your, by yourself because you're being not only the writer, but you're being possibly the editor or you're finding an editor or you're, you know, you have to possibly do the cover design or find someone to do that. And you're covering all bases, all bases. like you're doing the marketing, the publicity, all of it. Whereas now you can almost sit back a little bit and let other people do that and concentrate on the writing, which is which is what you love, which is your passion. And I think my advice to people is always like, what is it about the writing that you love? Do you want to be the marketer? Do you want to be the publicist or do you just want to be the writer? Because... If you if you like the idea of marketing your own work, then sure. But if you're if you're maybe a bit shyer or you just think, look, I don't really want to be on social media twenty four seven trying to you know find readers. I mean, how was it for you? Because I know you connected with readers straight away when you started. I mean, you'd taken a lot of courses and you'd you'd learnt from your friend that had mentioned self publishing. But when you first started, I'm sure there are people who self published for the first time and really struggled to find readers how was how did you manage to kind of find your readers straight away
3: um so a big part of it came through following the advice in some of the courses that i was um taking and uh bookbub at the time i mean it's still an amazing tool do you do you have bookbub in the uk
2: yeah yeah yeah
3: okay um and so i actually for my first book i got um very shortly after releasing it maybe within the first five to six months, I got a BookBub free deal. And so that got me, I think, around 110,000 downloads. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so from that, you know, I, I had in the back of the book somewhere where they could um, sign on to my newsletter list, and then they would get a bonus chapter. And I think that was really appealing to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so within a few months, I had a couple of thousand people on my newsletter list and so when I released new books you know then there were the people who would pick them up and as I said I I feel like I was extremely successful as far as reader relationships and connections I never made a lot of money from it you know kind yeah, of hobby, that, I mean, hobby is, money not income It's the hard
2: thing because like you say yeah. they're getting the book for free you're not making any money there and then you you're still having to produce more content because you're writing a newsletter mm-hmm. and maybe a bonus chapter But I would say that I think that I don't know whether you've seen any of this or experienced it, but I feel like the traditional publishing kind of um, method has moved a little bit more towards that side of it, because a lot of the time, particularly if you're an author that's had a smaller deal or you're with a smaller publisher, there's a lot that your publisher would encourage you to do in terms of. Your social media or writing a newsletter or trying to kind of engage with your audience. So I think almost the model of of self-publishing has moved a little bit closer to, to traditional publishing um even if it's not kind of exactly the same. So I think that this I mean you've obviously got insane numbers of, of skills under your belt now in terms of finding readers and interacting with readers but also, writing your books because like you said you're you've written 10 books now you know what you're doing now you don't need to worry about your plotting or your planning you know how to write <laughs> a book now so you've got that that experience I was wondering if there's anything kind of about that I will say it's still yeah. always hard <laughs> yeah well that is true that is true it doesn't get any easier I, I was I was wondering whether there's anything about the kind of the traditional publishing that has been surprising to you or different to how you expected
3: surprising but it certainly has been a challenge and exercise and patience to just wrap my mind around how long everything takes and I will say it makes sense and I understand why it takes so long because they have a lot of books and they have to figure out their schedules and you know to to get people interested in the books you have to send it out early you have to give them time to read so it makes sense that it takes so long but it is hard to be that patient you know oh my girl was essentially ready like at least eight months before it released in Canada and the UK and it still hasn't released in the US it won't be until uh, October and so yeah there's there's a lot of patience that um, it's hard but I think at least in my experience the payoff is so worth it and I do recognize that you know, obviously, a lot of hard work, a lot of dedication went into it. But I'm also extremely fortunate to have um, landed some of the publishers that I did. I'm with HarperCollins, um, in Canada, who is very big. Um, Wellbeck uh, have been wonderful. They're so focused and passionate, and I, I think the reach that my books are receiving, going through these traditional publishers, is just exponentially grander than anything I could have possibly reached myself with self-publishing and I will say there are other authors out there who have managed to have amazing reach but that you know I I wasn't there and I, th- I think the genre actually has a lot to do with it too like in the self-publishing world romance writers and thrillers are definitely the biggest movers of books and my books aren't that mm. and so it uh yeah it's I really appreciate the support and just having a team behind me into traditional publishing and they have so much knowledge and um, connections that I could never have done on my own. It's been really fulfilling in that Mm -hmm. way.
2: And you're happy to kind of relinquish control of that side of it as well?
3: Absolutely yes and you know obviously I know a lot and I've been in this world a long time so I'm I like it when they are seeking my opinion on things, but that's just like a small part of it. There's so much else that is just like, you do you, you know, even it's really nice when they have the formatting done and they ask me what I think of, you know their font choice or the, the chapter titles and I, I appreciate that and I, I think that might just be part of the process. At the same time I'm just like, no, that's fine. Like you're <laughs> handling it. <laughs> you know, like looks great. <laughs> yeah
2: know? it's probably probably um, back in the day when, when you were doing your self-publishing and you probably marked a, a couple of days in your calendar to be like, oh I've got to sort out the typesetting or whatever it is. And now you're just like <laughs> not my problem now.
3: <laughs> yes, exactly. I want tell you formatting is rough (laughs) and I don't know if they have like certain programs that do it a lot easier but it it can be intense even things like you know you never want one line to be on a page before the next chapter because it looks very awkward so you might then have to change four or five chapters in the back um, to make sure that this chapter doesn't just have one line on a page. I didn't see I
2: didn't even think of that so that is that is a a knowledge that you just don't have so that's brilliant (laughs) so (laughs) tell us a little bit about how you came to get your agent because I've heard um other people who are querying that have said I've pu- I've self-published a couple of novels like do I mention this do I not mention it how do I how do I say it so were you up front with your agent and what was their kind of response to knowing that you'd self-published books beforehand?
3: Um, so yes, I was with mine. I think my first query or two, I'd received some bad advice from a group that had lots of other good advice, but she, the person who was running this um, program, and I I paid for it and everything, had said she thought it would be better to not mention my self-published books, um, because it might throw agents off, and then certainly if they were interested in my book, then they could look and see Mm. that, um, And so one of the first responses I received from an agent I queried, she wrote and she said, are you this same Charlene Carr? And she put my website and I said, yes. And she actually was quite offended that I hadn't mentioned it. And she felt as if I was trying to, you know, pull the wool over her Mm -hmm. eyes or something. And, And that wasn't my intent. And so immediately I thought, you know what, let's just put it out there. And if an agent has a problem with that, then you know, they're probably not going to be the right agent for me. And it's possible there were some people I didn't hear back from because they thought, oh, she's not a debut. Um, mm-hmm. You know, no point. We're not going to be able to market her as a debut because that is a, a, a big marketing point. And so when it came to my agent, I don't recall having much discussion about it. Um, initially, at least. I, I think certainly, so in, in putting that, I put that I had, I think at the time it was 4,500 newsletter subscribers, and she certainly seemed to like that, mm-hmm. but I already had this starting point of readers, but yeah, I I don't think it it seemed to be a big issue for her, and I know in their agency, they do have at least one, maybe a few other authors who started off self-publishing, self-publi- sorry, started off self-publishing as well. Um, and so you know maybe they were more familiar with that but I think she just really focused on this book and what she could do for this book and how to market it and and based on what she said it was the kind of the type of story that she'd really been looking for Mm. and so I think she was just very excited to have found it.
2: (laughs) Yeah and I mean I I can't see I mean the fact that you already had so many subscribers and, and like readers who were desperate for your work like that surely is gold dust to a publisher or an agent because they have a like a willing audience ready for your next book so that I can't see why that would be an issue I guess so maybe you'd been like you had no readers that might be a problem but
3: I think it's more the sales numbers is Mm -hmm. is what was a concern and and so that woman who advised me not to put it was she was saying you know unless your book has been hitting the number one and everything then some publishers may think okay well this initial book wasn't selling. Why would her next one sell? Mm. Um, which, when you think about it, doesn't really make a lot of sense because it's very hard for a book to take off without a marketing budget and team and publicity behind it. And you know that certainly happened in the past where a book is kind of languishing and no one's buying it, and then suddenly someone who, you know, a who, who, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> that didn't come out right, someone like who's in the know or very popular suddenly talks about this book and it becomes Mm -hmm. a sensation and it's the same book it's just the difference of having power behind it yeah but I do understand why some publishers would be afraid of poor sales numbers from Mm -hmm. self-published books
2: so now that you've got all these books under your belt um, and I know that you know it doesn't get any easier each time but do you have a kind of set writing routine or a way you approach starting a new project I mean I'm guessing you're very um methodical by the way that you plan but do you have a kind of set routine in terms of time of day you like to write or where you like to write or does it kind of just you can write when the mood takes you
3: uh I definitely uh, have a set (laughs) plan so once I have all the the kind of story discovery plotting outline warning work done which that I can I kind of do where wherever you know on the couch when I'm out I have a file that I have on my phone in case I have any ideas and then I'll end up incorporating all that but when I finally sit down to write um I always like that to try to be the first thing that I do in the day so you know whether I'm writing three to four hours that is very precious time I try not to check um social media at all I'll only check my emails from the UK because uh With the time difference that we have, if I don't, it could be a whole day. If it was something time sensitive, like by the time I'm done writing, they're done for the day over there or here because that's where (laughs) you are. (laughs) Um, But beyond that, yeah, I I really focus on getting the words down on the page, and and I now try to get that first draft out as kind of quickly as I can, Mm. and I find that that works a lot better for keeping up my momentum and my pace.
2: And how long does it take you to do kind of like a first draft now?
3: Oh, it depends. Um, I mean, Hold My Girl took years, but I didn't have that method when I was writing. Um, My daughter was still home with me. I started when she was one and often was writing in 15 to 25 minute spurts because she didn't really nap. (laughs) and She just like always wanted to be close to my body as possible. And uh, for my next book, though, I wrote it in a little over three months, the first draft. Um, but I will say I took about four months to plan it. So when I actually sat down to write, it it came out pretty quickly.
2: Well, perfectly segued there. So I'd love to know finally what you're working on next, Sharding. Tell us a little bit, tease us a little bit about the next book you're gonna write. All
3: right. So I can only tease it. <laughs> I was asking my publisher about that and I didn't want any specific details. Yeah, that's fine. Um, So it's a multi-generational, multi-timeline novel that follows the story of a young woman, her mother and her grandmother. And it looks at kind of the secrets and betrayals of the past and how that connects to some fairly substantial um, political issues that happened both in Jamaica and Canada through the um, 70s to kind of 90s. And then the young woman, it's present day for her and so yeah it's I mean when it comes down to it I think it's a story about identity it's a story about mother-daughter relationships and just the the struggle to be true to ourselves and also be true to each other
2: nicely teased there (laughs) Well, if it's anything (laughs) as gripping as Hold My Girl, I'm sure it'll be excellent. Charlene, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you. That was Charlene Carr talking about her commercial novel, Hold My Girl, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop, hosted by bookshop.org which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time.